Hey everyone, I'm Jose Hernandez and welcome to Behind the Backing Track for Outsider Music. Outside and Music is a media company and record label that connects jazz artists with their passionate fan bases. Please visit us at our website at outsideofmusic.com, where you can see our artists and their recent releases, our podcasts, video interviews, and links to get in touch with us. Behind the Backing Track is a monthly podcast produced alongside Over Here by Big Boss Nick Finzer and Extended Harmony with music journalist Dan Gross. Covering all walks of life within the music industry, this podcast highlights performers, composers, arrangers, copyists, engineers, hell, even stuff I'm not quite sure about myself, in an effort to showcase the diversity of the music business. Uh, hey everyone, I'm here with uh, Matthew Karash of uh, Toronto Music Service. How are you, Matthew? <laughs> I'm all right. The, the first question I, I always like asking people is, how would you describe what your job description is? That's always a tricky one because the general populace doesn't really know what I do, mm-hmm. of course. It's all behind the scenes and it's quite a niche profession anyway. So I, I usually, well, first of all, I stumble on whether to call myself a music engraver or music copyist mm-hmm. or <laughs> note setter, typesetter. So it usually comes out as a big mess of combination of all of those. And then, just being honest, I have to backtrack and explain what that actually is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've been going with uh, sort of a scribe, musical scribe, or I usually say, think of a graphic designer who makes sheet music. Okay. So uh, my workflow is basically that of a graphic designer okay yeah and so um there will be some who may not be entirely certain of what a music engraver or copyist is so in like the most concise way of putting it without making it grossly misinterpreted how could you explain uh the art of music engraving or copying well We uh, need to be clear that it's notated music, and some people may not know that music can be or, you know, should be notated. Mm -hmm. Of course, the world over, a lot of music is not. It's primarily a Western thing. So once we explain that, most people in the West know that sheet music does exist. So I would explain to them that if you think about... um, a copy editor at a book publisher and how their job is to get the author's ideas and then format them, lay them out, and then also proofread and make sure that everything is clear, grammatically correct, the punctuation is correct. That's essentially what I do with music is that I get the ideas from the composer or the arranger, um, which are usually written in haste because there are deadlines. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, are usually written, you know, quickly, even sloppily, because they know that there's going to be a copyist down the line that they can rely on and fix that. And mm-hmm. the goal of the composer is to get their ideas out as quickly as they can before they lose them. So they're going to give me their mess of, you know, chicken scratch and whatever. And my job is going to be to rewrite it, uh, digitize it, and make sure it's very clear, idiomatic and formatted um, beautifully nice and easy to read and I also take care of if they wish I will take care of the printing 
Okay. And there's a, a whole black art to that too, because we have our own printing standards in our industry, which mm-hmm. so most may not know. Um, our own tools, hardware, software, all of these sorts of things that I am hired for my expertise of. And um, I want to make sure that what the player receives on the stand is elegant, uh, even beautiful, concise, clear, and I want to be sure that your rehearsals are going to go smoothly or your session is going to go smoothly. And I am here to save frustration and I'm here to save your time and your money in that area. Especially if you're paying for recording time per the hour or if you're paying for musicians per the hour, which often is going to be the case. That was certainly the best way you could put it in as short of a time as possible. Um, So let's talk about... uh, a bit on your studies. So did any of, I guess, your undergrad prepare you for what you do now currently? To a point, yes. Uh, as I recall, I took music theory. Mm-hmm. Music theory and composition was the name of my program. So I was sort of aspiring more to be a composer at that time. Mm-hmm. But I also just loved to learn a bit how music worked and how it was notated, uh, I found particularly interesting as a composer because my goal is a composer, John Cage, and he said that a composer is essentially a person who tells people what to do, which is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always very interested in, well, how do I make these musicians do what I want? How do I get the sounds out of my head and through their fingers and out into the air. Okay. That was uh, sort of my interest with notation. So how do I how do I make that sound? How do I make that happen? And through that, I started learning the basic standards of how to notate. Uh, we transcribed things by ear. And we learned the principles of you no know, layout, theming, how to spell rhythms the rules surrounding how to spell accidentals and chords, all these sort of things. And also just what different players expect. You have to know what to give a harpist. You have to know what to give a percussionist because Mm -hmm. they have special considerations. You have to know how to work with electronic instruments, all of these sorts of things um, in studying orchestration, what's possible and how do I communicate that best? So there was that um, in studying composition. We didn't specifically study engraving, but we did discuss how in the olden days, 1950 and earlier, how uh, there was more of a specific composer-copyist relationship. And there still is today, but more often than not, uh, the composer is the copyist today, which Mm -hmm. was not so much the case in the past. And we were warned that we should learn uh, at least the basics to save ourselves time, money, aggravation, and to get a better performance out of our musicians. Beyond that, they would generally only uh, red pen something if it was particularly egregious. 
So we weren't given a ton of feedback about our notation, possibly because our teachers themselves had their own copyists, or mm -hmm. perhaps even they didn't know. And I can't fault them for not knowing. And I think this brings upon one of the points that you wanted to cover in which music copyists are a necessary thing. The level of work that they do behind the scenes is almost unheard of. I think I've seen a couple of your own horror stories, if you want to elaborate on any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as it's not too traumatic, I wouldn't mind. Well, uh, my, my mandate is, and I guess my, my mission in life at this point, would be to convince the world that, that they need a copyist and why. And that can be difficult when you are one because they need to know that I'm not just saying this because I want to sell you something. I'm trying to sell you something I genuinely think that you need. And the reasons for this are you know, multifaceted and it comes back to sort of how this relationship between the composer and copyist has become blurred and everyone has their own software now. It's not terribly expensive. It's accessible. You can even work with freeware if you want, though I don't recommend it because the freeware out there, except for Lily Pond, is not fantastic. Mm -hmm. But you're not really paying me for my software. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. You're paying me because I know how to use it and because I know what should go on the page, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's what people don't know because it's not taught as well as it should be, mm -hmm. which is probably the biggest problem. So people aren't aware uh, when they're making mistakes, which is a problem. And sometimes the players that get it also don't realize that what they are receiving is not uh, optimal or even adequate, honestly, because they've never been taught the principles and the rules. Idiomatic things. That's been the hardest part for me is trying to do a hard sell but also coming across as genuine mm -hmm. because I know I know that if you hire a copyist you're going to have an easier time as a composer you're going to be you're going to have one less thing to worry about a very frustrating thing at that it's going to free you up to focus on your piece you're going to have all the music prep taken care of even, you know, the printing and shipping, if you want it, it's going to come out beautifully. Your performers are going to appreciate it. They're going to be happier in rehearsal. They're going to play better. You're going to need less takes. You're going to need less rehearsal time. There's going to be less questions asked. These things that, in a high-pressure situation, for instance, in working with a symphony orchestra or on a film score, you are paying quite literally hundreds of dollars per minute to have a symphony orchestra in a room. Not to mention what you need to pay the recording engineers. Yeah. That's applicable. The music librarians, uh, space, all of this overhead that I suppose time is really of the essence here because time is really money. That is so imperative in this situation. And, you know, I've had, this is not super common, but every so often uh, someone comes to me and tells me they want their music notated just for posterity because they want to leave something behind. 
when they go. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, of course, of course I'll help you realize your vision and make sure that your music gets passed down. And now with the advent of digitizing everything, having everything on the internet, you can set up your own uh, publication, you can self-publish essentially, and your music can live forever once it's been digitized. Which is not a concern uh, as it once was. You know, they're still unearthing, like, you know, they found a piece behind Eric Satie's old piano or something. They still unearth Mozart. <laughs> like, it's unreal. Stuff that they never had professionally copied. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what you want to use me for is up to you. I'm I'm here for you, composers. <laughs> yeah. Composers out there, I'm here for you. So let's get a bit into things that you had to learn while on the job and just kind of the process of learning how to be a copyist in general. Well, there's going to be a learning curve, quite a learning curve. If you want to give it a shot, seriously give it a shot, it's going to take you a few years, which could be said of anything. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need to slowly and surely try to build a name for yourself, build a good reputation, make contacts. Much like you would uh, to enter any facet of the music industry. Uh, It's all about referral. Unless you can catch lightning in a bottle and you can land a job at a publisher. Up until that point, and for some people their whole lives, everything, everything, everything is referral and your reputation and your brand. I would suggest to anyone starting out that you put in some pretty serious research and pretty ample practice and surround yourself with bigger fish, essentially. Well, there's a saying, you know, you should be the least intelligent person in the room in a situation, right? Because you stand to gain the most. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I learned uh, trial and error. And then when I decided to take it more seriously, I started trying to hang out with the heavy hitters and the, the pros and seeing what I could glean and trying to earn my stripes and prove myself. And I feel like I still am. It's a very small community, and it's a protective community. Much um, like, you know, you, you, if you ask the top top recording engineers, live sound mixers, the best players you know, they're going to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, a guarded community. You can work your way in if you're dedicated, but you do need to prove yourself, of course. Of course, yeah. There's not really a certification there's not uh, a degree for it. There should be, but there's not. Obviously, having certain names, certain credits on your CV is not going to hurt. You're going to want to, when you can get them, put the bigger names in there. Um, so my, my portfolio is a balance between what I thought would best show my versatility and my skill set. Uh, compounded with 
you know, I wanted to put the bigger names in there, mm-hmm. obviously, so people can say, oh, you know, this person is has worked with so and so. Like they must be gives you a certain uh, veritas. <laughs> oh no, yeah, you can totally name drop if you if you need to, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I, I can and do and will, and uh, <laughs> if you can, yeah, do it absolutely. There's no reason not to. Everyone else is doing it, and you uh, you're gonna want to think about branding and I worked under my own name for a long time before I decided to make a company name. I, I got some positive feedback on that, particularly uh, the one that sticks out was someone told me, your name sounds very big. <laughs> you, know, you sound like you, you run Toronto, which is not true. I'd like it to be true. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I, I hadn't considered that when I picked the name. I just wanted something that sort of exemplified where I am and what I do. Yeah, and I mean, if no one else has taken the and, and no one had taken it, and <laughs> yeah. that speaks to, I guess, how niche uh, our community is in this city. There's not many of us in this city, despite hmm. being the biggest city in the country. A city of two and a half million or so. Wow. But uh, the scene the scene is not here. The scene is in New York City. The mm-hmm. scene is in Los Angeles. Uh, there's, there's publishers scattered about Europe. I know there's some great ones in the UK, Germany, Austria. Canada, not really. How does, how does, well, not how does someone get in touch with you? That's obviously just, you know, sending you an email or a message. But how, how does the, the communication start what what are what is a typical normal request well people really seem to appreciate the personal touch of facebook and how with with email everything needs to be to the point but i don't really mind if you want to just reach out to me over facebook messenger or you know what have you Mm -hmm. that's okay with me as long as we keep some professional boundaries which Generally, they do, with some exceptions. <laughs> there may come a time <laughs> where I say, okay, let's move to email now. I, but <laughs> middle of the road experience is that they inquire about what I do, and I'll tell them what I can do for them. And I'll get a, an idea of the scope of your project, and then we'll talk money. A lot of the time, that will scare them away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. perhaps they're expecting that it won't cost quite so much or you know, oh I've worked with this person in the past and they charged me half that yeah but you do get what you pay for is mm-hmm. my next point Yeah. so I have to do my hard sell and say well yeah it's going to cost you so and so but I am flexible which I am mm-hmm. I'll say well, but I'm flexible if you need it and I urge you to do it not just because I want this payout, because I think you're going to benefit, and I think you're going to thank me later. And usually they do. Almost always they do. The biggest hurdle is selling the job, I suppose. I've heard of kind of several price structures of how music copyists go about their job. Um, I've heard sometimes it's a per-page thing. Yeah. Is it usually just per-page? So uh, for those who are listening and don't know, per page 
can mean literally per the full page or it could mean per four bars is uh, sort of the LA jargon. Four bars, full uh, orchestral page, uh, lighter page. Uh, I can do that. I do a mixture of per page in both senses or per hour and less rarely uh, a flat rate per project. I don't like to do a flat rate because one party always loses mm -hmm. by nature and yeah. that doesn't feel fair to me. And to be honest, the person who loses is usually the hobbyist. So it's not really an advantage for me. Uh, people seem to like it because they know they aren't going to be surprised when they get the invoice. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, but I really try not to do it because there is no real scenario in which it's truly fair. Uh, I think working hourly works well, and I do it the most, and it's generally quite fair. Uh, they know, they have some idea of, of what they're looking for. If you ask me for a loose quote, a ballpark, I can do that. I don't mind. Working per frame is also perfectly fair. And the advantage to that is that I can give you your complete quote up front. Okay. And that's great. The problem with the page rate is that it doesn't always work. Because there are some things that I, I do a lot of transcribing music actually from audio. Mm -hmm. That's actually a, quite a large portion of what I do. And you can't charge a frame rate there because what matters is the, what's in the frame, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want me to transcribe uh, a pop punk song, or if you want me to transcribe Frank's up at the black page or something, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I can't charge you the same. That's, that's quite ridiculous. I'm going to have to charge you hourly for that. So for, we call it takedown sometimes. Takedown, aka transcription. I'll charge hourly. Uh, for editing, so I do this very often. Somebody sends me uh, their sort of, their effort at typesetting the thing. And they'll send it to me just for cleanup. I do that hourly because I, I can't really work by frame in that area. I don't really know what's going to be on the page mm -hmm. and how long that's, that's going to take me. So hourly is preferable there. So I can do a page rate for that if you want. I can sort of make it work. And I have. So that's been my general experience. Uh, I'd say it's almost always hourly for me. Though I do know some copyists that work almost exclusively by page rate. And whatever works for you, if you feel that it's fair, that's fine. I just had to add that whether or not you're unionized is going to make a difference in this area too. Uh, I go by the the New York chapter of the AFM and Record Federation of Musicians, mm -hmm. though I'm not a member, so I have flexibility in ways that they don't. I still adhere to their price points because I don't want to undercut my colleagues 
And the worst thing that you can do as a freelancer is undercut your colleagues because they'll undercut you right back and everybody loses. Yeah. So we need at least, uh, I would say, a modicum of solidarity. Yeah. I and um, totally joining, joining the AFM is something on the horizon for me. I haven't felt strictly the need to do it yet, uh, but perhaps someday. So, okay. So let's talk a bit about what, what your toolkit involves. I know you talked about lily pods earlier, but I kind of want to get a feel of like what you exactly need to execute your job well. Okay, well, my setup at home, and uh, I'm working on upgrading my printer right now, and I think these are discontinued, but usually your best bet is to go for a refurbished HP, uh, maybe something of like the 5200 series. Uh, that's what I'm buying up right now. Uh, the, you know, those old HP workhorses that you can print out a million pages a year and you know <laughs> you can run uh thousands and thousands of pages off of one toner yeah yeah you're gonna want something like that so you aren't spooling all of your overhead on ink which i seem to be uh something <laughs> late yeah something uh laser laser is a must uh, just for the clarity of the image and the durability because ink jets tend to run under moisture mm -hmm. so that would be the most important thing the next thing is that you are going to want something wide format because music is generally printed oversized yeah 11 by 17 correct oh yeah yeah so 11 yeah. by 17 actually in a lot of circumstances isn't enough really because music is generally printed on 9 by 12 or you know 9.5 by 12.5 mm -hmm. 10 by 13 uh, b3 uh, outside North America so you're gonna want something that can do all of those sizes so in my case uh, I bought this Canon photo printer that's wide format I think it goes up to 20 inches the reason for that is that if I want to print 9 by 12, I can print two pages at a time on 12 by 18, so which we call two up. Hmm. So I print two up and then I fold it and bind it so you can make booklets. You know, as opposed to single page 9 by 12, I would have to get into taping and all of this stuff that I don't want to do. I'm generally not a fan of taping. So, yeah. So you have that, and then I can handle uh, twelve by eighteen scores if I want them. Thirteen by nineteen scores if I want them. That's rare, but and then I can do nine by twelve booklets, ten by thirteen booklets, uh, B four booklets, whatever. So with twenty inches, I'm pretty covered. Uh, you just have to source the paper which I found a paper supplier. Uh, I had to order it specially. It can be kind of hard to find, but you're going to want to look for a heavy stock, something like an 80 pounds. Uh, sometimes you see like 70 pounds. Mm -hmm. 
for the part and then 80 or 90 or even 100 for the cover. Okay. You can do something, something like that. And uh, white is very popular, but I print everything on ivory or cream uh, because it's easier on the eyes and especially when you're under stage lights, there can be glare. Yeah. So I, I use a, a linen patterned ivory, which I really enjoy. Something like that. Though uh, even the, the basic ivory from Staples is not terrible. Yeah. So I do that. And uh, to go with that, if you want to do booklets, you're going to need to bind them. So you might want to look at a spiral binding machine. Mm -hmm. I would not use comb binding because it does not last. It's not very durable. It, you tend to lose pages. Uh, if you look at anyone's music stand that has a real book and you see that half the book is missing, that's comb binding. Yeah. That's Don't do it. Not not the not the most fun thing. <laughs> it's it's absolutely not when your pages are all over the floor. Spiral binding or you can uh, just look up how to do a saddle stitch on YouTube. I have a long reach stapler, I think it's 18 inches, that also has a ruler. So that's kind of a dual straight edge and long reach stapler that I can use to staple my booklets. Hmm. I use, I have a 18 inch ruler, it's pretty indispensable for straight edge and I use it for folding. Uh, grab yourself a bone folder, I have a Martha Stewart bone folder craft knife that I use a lot. Mm. So I use that for uh, folding creases. I, I use the knife on it. You know, if you're taping, you mm -hmm. might want to cut the excess. Yeah. Things like that. Uh, you'll want, uh, this is not necessary, but I have a, a only graph, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, the chalk holder from grade school with the five chalk. It's basically that with five, <laughs> with, yeah. I basically have that with five pens. Oh, that's so nice. that's that's called a raster. If you want to start making your own, uh, yeah, you can use it to make your own paper, just blank. Hmm. You're so inclined. Sometimes I bust that out on the gig when I need to write something quickly. You can look into some fountain pens if that's your thing. If you want to do hand copying. They make these uh, music-specific fountain pens, which I haven't tried personally, but I'm curious about. Hmm. I have specific score tape, which is called console tape or artist's tape, which, um, I mean, masking tape will do in a pinch, but it, it, painting tape doesn't really Hold stand well. up. Yeah. No, the, the glue is really weak. Yeah. So I, I grabbed a roll of console tape, and uh, you can get that in colors, various colors. So I grabbed the uh, the ivory, which would match the paper. Mm -hmm. It's not so distracting. You can also use medical tape. It's popular, of about uh, half inch, three quarter inch. Uh, I keep both. I think I'm missing tools. A music stand, so you can, you know, do your test prints. Yeah. 
Uh, it's not uncommon to see uh, a dual monitor set up. You're so inclined, uh, usually one portrait orientation for the score and then one landscape orientation for the parts. Hmm. Or you could even do two portrait orientation if you wanted to. I run a dual monitor uh, scoring parts, and I find that's pretty helpful. Uh, I have a Sapache number pad that I use as the uh, Sibelius keypad. Keypad, yeah. With uh, the numpad. You can use it for Mali too. And if you have a smartphone, which most people do, you can find apps that perform this function as well. Uh, I have a Sibelius number pad on my iPhone. It's just called uh, NumPad. So oh, NumPad. just called num NumPad? Okay. NumPad, yeah. It, it has uh, all of the layouts from uh, all of the windows of the Sibelius NumPad right on there with the symbols. So sometimes uh, when I need to get out of the house, which is a very, <laughs> very real issue, for a professional music obvious or composer yeah. is needing to get into the house once in a while. Sometimes I go and uh, I work in a cafe and I, I bring my MacBook and I work off of uh, my iPhone. Mm. Yeah. I don't I don't use a MIDI keyboard, though you totally can, and I know a lot do. Uh, there's one in particular that I really like. The small M audios are good. And you may want one that doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles because a lot of the time they do come with a lot of bells and whistles because they're being used for you know electronic music production and synthesis, things like that. But uh, generally, uh, you can just go for something small, portable. The M Audio Mini Thirty Two. I'm looking at. It's basically just keys, and then it has, uh, you know, it's like two octaves, and then it has the uh, pitch shifting capability. There's the, the X key. These are a little more expensive, but they're nice and bare bones and minimal. Um, I'm looking at one myself, if I maybe want to give a MIDI controller another shot. So there's the, uh, yeah, the X key or X key air. Hmm. They're... You know, nice and slim. Um, they would work well uh, with a MacBook, for instance. Uh, they're even kind of the same color, same width, almost. So that's an option. Uh, I do recommend using, if you work off a laptop, I do recommend um, purchasing a keyboard, preferably wireless. So I, I use a wireless, uh, a Bluetooth Apple keyboard with a a number pad attachment and you know I just run it off rechargeable batteries keep the wires out of the scenario I don't want wires in yeah. my life and I don't run one personally but I know that some run like a Logitech gamer mouse mm. it's the uh, the G13 in particular or something of that ilk is popular if you want to take the time to uh, to program it. Yeah, the mouse buttons on the side, yeah. right? Yeah, that, those are the ones with the, the track wheel and the buttons all along the side. You know, it's, it's just a programmable general gamer mouse. 
Yeah. But you could absolutely rig that up with your software if you have particular shortcuts. Something I might look into one day. I haven't really found any for it yet, but there is that. You could absolutely turn your printer wireless. Also, I've seen that with some Bluetooth uh, attachments. Maybe something to look into. Uh, an iPad, if you have one, is also a great tool for previewing your scores because it seems that the industry is going to be going that way, less paper and, and more digital reader. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you were going to be sending things out uh, formatted for iPad, it would be helpful to have one. That's a luxury, of course. I'm not saying every, <laughs> every beginning hobbyist <laughs> or, e or even every program hobbyist needs to go out and grab one. Oh, yeah, that, for sure. That could be a part of your process. I don't really see why not. Mm-hmm. covered basics. Uh, you may want to invest in a paper cutter. I don't have one, though I'd like one. But you know, when I want to do custom sizes, like you know, whatever, 10 by 13, you mm -hmm. can use your uh, 11 by 17 stock and trim it. And I've done that before. Uh, or when I need, you know, uh, B4 paper that's not really found easily in North America. Paper slicer can be useful. I usually go down to the print shop and I, I, I give them five bucks and they'll do it for me with a fancy laser machine. That's an option. True, yeah. But I think it's the basic rundown of my tools in terms of my hardware. You don't need a ton. Um, if, you, if you want to think about, you know, Getting into film composing, you're going to need to drop anywhere from five to ten grand on a supercomputer and monitors, and <laughs> controllers, <laughs> and stuff. So, you know, you don't need it a lot to be a music copyist. I think my investment in tools, not counting my computers, just a few hundred, maybe three hundred for a printer, and a couple more hundred for for all of these tools. You can source them at. Uh, a craft shop, uh, art supply, medical supply, stationery store, whatever. So, yeah, well under under the grand, you can have yourself a, a pretty professional setup. Yeah, well, I mean, it it sounds like there's a lot, but it doesn't. It it all just adds up very slightly instead of all adding up like a lot, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you don't have to go out and buy all this at once either. This is all stuff I've accumulated over the course of five, ten years, just mm -hmm. as I've, I, I've learned more about how professional music works and thought, I mean, you know, maybe I should add that to my arsenal, try it out. Believe it or not, I have friends in LA that you can print and format and copy 
sorry, let me start over. You can print and bind and tape scores professionally. That could be your day job. And that's if you're start, if you're, yeah, believe it or not, that's a full-time job. And starting out in the industry, that is likely to be your full-time job because that's the job that the, the big cats don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> the taping, they're going to make you do it. But uh, I, I talk to people like that. I said, what do you use? Like, what are your tools? Where do I get them? Uh, they can be a little hard to track down. But if you get creative and you just look in places you might not otherwise look, like uh, artist supplies and stuff like that, you'll start to uh, build your toolkit there. I am a Sibelius user, pretty through and through. So I think in the 10 years I've been doing this, I started on Finale. So those are the two main industry competitors. I was on Finale maybe three or four years. Um, got fairly proficient at it. and I. But I kept hearing really glowing reviews about Sibelius from friends. So I, I gave that a shot. I found out it was better suited to my needs. Mm-hmm. So I stuck with it. Um, I'm at a point where generally I'll pass finale jobs off to somebody else and they'll pass me a Sibelius job in return. We do like to live in one place. Though I, I do know some who work on four or five softwares. If you can do that, all the power to you. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, Lily Pond users are a pretty rare and interesting breed uh, because... I, I don't really use it, but as I understand it, the input is more akin to writing code. Hmm. So if you can do that, um, all the power to you. Um, I know some copyists who have really, really fantastic input in Lily Pond, and they love it. And then you have Dorco, who's sort of the, the dark horse, who's been catching up to the competition and yeah. seems like they're doing quite well new kid on the block and all that stuff the new kid on the block uh what you hear thrown around a lot is oh this is going to be the future of notation mm-hmm. and if perhaps someday it could bridge the gap between uh sibelius and finale purists and we could all be on the same platform that would be great yeah i mean do you think that uh, dorico will end up being that way anything's possible mm-hmm uh, I'm not as experienced with it as some, so I may not be the person to ask, but I'm really for the idea that we could all move to one platform uh, that would have sort of the notoriety of the uh, ubiquitousness of Pro Tools, for instance, or Final Cut, mm-hmm. um, something like that. I'm for that idea. I know that the software is still sort of a work in progress and it's still lacking some key features but I think they have nowhere to go but up and um, I see myself potentially moving over to Dorico in the near future I will say that okay yeah so um, those would be sort of your your bread and butter. Uh, since I do takedown, I also use a software called 7th String Transcribe, or 
commonly just known as transcribe software, which you can use as a slow downer. You can, you know, zoom in, find the finer points of the recording. You can apply uh, phase cancellation and extract parts, sort of the way they make karaoke tracks. Hmm. You can, yep, you can pitch things up and down, speed things up and down, apply EQ curves to make things jump out. Little things like that. Uh, you can tune the recording if it's of a questionable pitch standard or just a different <laughs> or just a different pitch standard. Yeah. You know, back in the day, <laughs> sometimes uh, they didn't tune or sometimes the thing has been bumped from vinyl to tape to digital and now the tuning is weird. Yeah. So that's a super helpful software. It's it's cheap and it does everything you need it to and I recommend it to anyone who does this kind of work. And I think if you are looking at software, you should, usually you ask yourself, do, oh, do I want to be a Sibelius, Storco, or Finale? If you're up to it, give Lily Pond a shot. See if it's for you. Uh, other tools, there are, if you do a lot of copying from paper, um, digitizing music from paper, you could look into SharpEye, which is a scanning software, which uh, does it best as it can, tries to realize the, the handwritten score. So this is going to depend on the quality of the scan and the quality of the handwritten notation. And there's always going to be error, but sometimes that can be effective. I generally don't use it because I'm faster inputting manually, but mm -hmm. some like it. So sharp eye and excuse me while I blank and I try to remember the one that Avid makes. Photoscore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Photoscore, notate me. Uh, these are yeah, those are the Avid softwares that do basically the same thing with varying results. Um, I've used, this is rare, but I've used uh, Melodyne. If you don't know yes. what Melodyne is, they got this. Uh, Melodyne and what's the... It's used as uh, pitch, pitch correction software often, but it has a feature called DNA which attempts to separate the, the stems of the audio so that you can tune things uh, independently, even after the track has been mixed and mastered, which is amazing, by the way. That's pretty dope. So uh, look up Melodyne <laughs> DNA if you're not familiar with it because it'll blow your mind. <laughs> so I've used that sometimes, not for the intended purpose, which is tuning, mm -hmm. but just to see if it could read what the musicians are doing. So I've done that with varying results. Sometimes it's been helpful. Sometimes it's better to do it by ear. I do have an occasional assistant who has perfect pitch and in involved takedown jobs. I usually employ him because he has this gift that I don't. Hmm. And it only makes sense. So 
if you don't have perfect pitch, find somebody who does, because you may be very thankful. And and sometimes uh, I'll I'll have him lift a part that I can't grab or a certain chord I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes I I do it myself just you know for the practice. Mm -hmm for the ear training and then I pass it off to him who needs no ear training because he's a psychic and he'll correct it for me. And then I can, you know, yeah. And then I can a and a and B the two and see where I need to improve. So that's been rewarding and uh, pretty indispensable when I'm doing more complex jobs. Jazz piano. I'm looking at you. <laughs> oh yeah, I, that's... I'm trying to lift. I'm trying to lift the thirteenth chords. It's <laughs> pretty indispensable. <laughs> this is funny. Uh, I'm just. <laughs> I feel like I need to mention the first takedown job I ever took was lifting a big band recording. <laughs> oh. From uh, from the fifties. Oh. And as you know, the audio quality is generally not great. And there's like one microphone. Yeah. And I'm trying to these like 13th chords with this 19 piece big band and it was a disaster <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm sure that that was just a, a living nightmare having to actually hear them hear it hear it all out especially the, the specific voicing Cause... yeah and this was when I was still in school and, and didn't know about you know the drop fours and the drop twos and I'm trying to pick Ooh. out all of these flat 13s and oh my it, we didn't finish the job Oh, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I put up a good fight, and I, I said, "Well, I'm gonna have to pass this off to somebody else at this point in the career." Mm -hmm. But that was a, a learning experience. That's the only job I've ever not finished, and I, I think justifiably so. Yeah. So I think one in uh, the span of ten years is not that bad. Oh, that, that's a pretty good uh, track record, if I say so myself. There have been instances where I've passed the job off to someone more capable. Mm -hmm. No, I could do it. I thought, well, uh, I don't think this is the job for me. It's yeah. not really my line of fire. Yeah. And I have uh, a network of these copyists that I, I've met mostly online. Mm -hmm. And they're all over the world, and we all pass each other jobs. And, you know, you get the jobs that you want and you're our best at, and the client gets the best copyist for them, and it actually works quite well. Uh, how we just pass each other work. It seems like everyone wins. Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think it's it's a good thing as you know you get in communication with your own colleagues and peers, and also you get to you know continually prove to the industry that you know what you're doing by doing the thing you know how to do best success successfully every single time right and you'll see this too uh gigging musicians they do this they pass gigs off mm -hmm. trade gigs you know yeah. i'm not the best person for this you're gonna want this person and they're gonna return the favor that's fine uh, no one does it all mm -hmm. if you asked me if i wanted to do another big band job i'd think about it but you know i might pass it off at the same time i might trade it um, so I, I have this, this, this circle sort of that I am sort of the guitar expert. So when they have questions about guitar and, uh, folk strings, like, you know, banjo, and 
ukulele, electric bass, electric guitar, classical guitar, and all of these things that have their own language, they come to me. And then I have friends who, uh, you know, I have one who's an excellent wind band arranger. I have one that's a great jazz brass arranger mm-hmm. and knows all the idiomatic notations. And I know some great piano players that I have look over my stuff because I'm not great shakes at the piano and, you know, they're going to catch bad fingerings and little minutia. Yeah. So uh, I, I couldn't have come as far as I have without my community. I think it's important to have one and not to just go rogue. And I've seen others do that too. I'm just going to go rogue because I'm the best and I know everything. Well, <laughs> I appreciate the confidence, but I don't think that's the best way to do it, to be honest. Hmm. So the way I see it is enter the community and be humble because you don't know everything yet. And I've been at fault for that too, thinking that I do know everything. I learn new things every day, as one should. And uh, I'm working with very seasoned pros who have been doing this 30, 40 years, and I still have things to teach them. And I'm sure when I've been doing it that long, I'll still have things to learn. Yeah. That's I guess there's there's not a one way to... There's no point where you say to yourself, well, I've made it. you know, Unless you maybe land a job, a full-time job at a publisher. Yeah. Or a scoring studio or something like that. But when you're freelancing, there's not one opportunity I'm trying to land. It's, it's a hierarchy of opportunities. And uh, my sort of inner circle that I've been growing has gotten better as I've gotten better. And yeah, if you're trying to work into the network, I'd say that's what you should look for. Like, who do I know with similar interests? What are they good at? How can we trade skills, trade jobs? And, you know, find ways to give back to the community. And if you're good to it, it will be good to you. Yeah, that's solid. Really quick, I I just wanted to ask you, I I know you said earlier you're going to go off the deep end with this one, but as a copyist, I'm sure you've come across some very awful looking things and you've had to fix <laughs> them. Um, so what, what is kind of your highlight reel of bad meets ugly? Well, if you want to get me going, <laughs> uh, my, my frustration and, and this is never personal because I can't blame anyone for not knowing the standards. I mm-hmm. can't because as we talked about earlier, the, there's not really the infrastructure in music education for people to learn. Yeah, It's something you really do have to explore on your own, and we can uh, discuss all the technical resources uh, after the fact. But I think my, my biggest rubs are improper rhythmic spelling, so improper beamings are generally pretty infuriating. Thinking that you need to reinvent the wheel for no real reason. I think that's sort of a phase we go through. Yeah. uh, When we're, when we're newer. Young man's game. Um, 
bad beaming, um, using uh, using stemlets and and beamlets. If you aren't sure what those are, you can look them up. Google image that. <laughs> using stemlets and beamlets and complex, just utterly complex notations that just aren't needed. Mm -hmm. uh, using either poor harmonic spellings or just unnecessary harmonic spellings. Um, bad formatting really gets me. You know, bad spacing when things are crammed or they're too spacious or having things spaced out too far on the page and having mistakes spaced poorly and things in which you you wouldn't want to see on your own music stand why would I pass that off to somebody else it, it doesn't make sense so when I before I send something out I do this several times I give it a speed read so I scan it with my eye and the things that you will learn just from doing that like I can't begin to tell you how much you're going to realize oh when my eye jumps here, this is really awkward. Or, you know, when you do a test print and you think, oh, this looks really small on the page. I should probably fix that. This is really hard to read. Or this page turn is physically impossible. Um, that's not going to work. You know, you have to yeah. think about these things. Where am I going to put the page turns? You know, am I going to do a two-page spread or three-page? And am I binding? Am I taping? Am I, what am I doing? That's very frustrating. Using the wrong music size or paper size for the job, which is extremely common, uh, really rubs me because there are different standards for different purposes. Mm -hmm. Particularly uh, using landscape format when it does not have any image at all. It's really egregious and I see it all the time. <laughs> Thinking that it's going to give you more real estate when it actually the opposite it actually gives you less. Uh, using those like super awkward, clunky paper sizes like legal size, eight and a half by fourteen. Like, please, please do not do that. Just don't do it. Landscape, landscape ledger size, eleven by seventeen. Don't do it. Please, please don't do it. It, it is so. Until you print your score and do your test print and bind it and put it on the stand and you see how ridiculous it looks and you see how cumbersome it is to make the page turns. Yeah. So please, uh, do, do test prints. Do test prints. And I tell copyists that even have, you know, say their output is 95, 100% digital, get a printer anyway. Yeah. Do a test print and hold the thing in your hands and put it on your music stand and sit as far away as the musician will be sitting and ask yourself, is this something that I would want to come in and read? And if you wouldn't, you need to fix that. Those are some of my rubs. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a checklist, actually, that I made. Uh, my, when I do my final sweep, and I usually do that hopefully only once, but sometimes a few times. Mm -hmm. And you can look that up on musicengravingtips.com. It's called, Is My Score Finished? And it's my personal checklist. I haven't updated it in a year or two, but I think there's some good stuff in there. And it's maybe 85% accurate as to my current checklist. 
now that I'm thinking about it, I should go back and give it an update. You can always reach out, you know, to a mm -hmm. professional and, and ask, what's the most egregious thing? And then fix that. Move yeah. on. And then your next score, okay, what's egregious? Fix that. And eventually, you won't have egregious things. You'll just have small things. Yeah, that are subtle. and. Yeah, and if you reach out to the community, we'll help you. Uh, you could join... I'm presuming this is how you find me, Music Engraving Tips, the Facebook group? Yes. Right. So I'm a moderator there with, I think, 12 or 13 other professionals. And we are here for you if you have a question. I, I mean, I can't give you all of my secrets for free, and I can't, you know, I can't do a job for free, of course, because it's going to complicate a business. But if you want me to throw you some quick feedback here and there. I really don't mind. Um, there are a lot of dedicated individuals out there who are willing to do it. You do have to be wary of the, the echo chamber effect. <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. in a large group, there's, there's going to be bad advice too, but more often than not, you know, one of the moderators or somebody is going to come along and sort it out. Yeah. So I've learned a lot just from that particular online community. Uh, there are there are a lot of Facebook groups. Uh, orchestration online. Uh, there are software-specific groups for Finale, Dorico, Lillipon, Spellius, what have you. I run a group called music transcription and takedown community if you have a question about uh, a takedown if you have a technical question or if you need a second opinion yeah feel free to join up and uh, just while we're on the, the topic of technical resources we could list some of the industry standard texts yeah I was just about to ask that actually, like, because I know of, um, wow, uh, behind bars. I was gonna say breaking bars, breaking bad. Okay. Breaking <laughs> um, bad. Breaking. <laughs> breaking bars. Uh, no, behind bars by Elaine Gould and uh, the art of music copying by, uh, wow, I can't remember his first name, but Romer, right? Clinton. Clinton Romer. Clinton Romer. Okay. Clinton. Clinton. I. <laughs> Okay, but are are those comprehensive enough in them, like just those two by themselves? But or are there other texts that you refer to as well? Those two are great. Uh, the the Gould is probably the forerunner right now. Uh, Elaine Gould is the senior most senior copyist at Faber Music in the UK. If anyone is not familiar. And her book is fantastic and comprehensive. Uh, there are some things it does not cover. It doesn't really cover jazz-specific or pop-specific notations of any kind. Mm -hmm. But uh, as to... Oh, and some film-specific film things. But music theater-specific things, you're going to need to learn on the job. All of the above there. But as far as traditional symphonic preparation, uh, it's got everything you need. Accepting, you know, some contemporary inventions, 
which are evolving all the time. But that's a great book. Uh, I keep it on my nightstand and I, I check it all the time. It's also just a good read cover to cover. You know, if you're up for that, <laughs> you're going to learn. It's not easy, but you'll mm -hmm. learn a ton. The Romer is good. I have a copy of the Romer as well. It's kind of hard to find these days, but if you can find it, that was one of the first texts that I used when I was starting out. And it's more geared toward hand copying, but there's still, you know, most everything in there is still applicable to digital. Yeah. Kurt Stone, Music Notation in the 20th Century. That's one that I need to source a copy of myself. Gardner Reed, Music Notation. Also on my list, I think it's a fairly inexpensive book. Some of these are, are a bit expensive. Behind Bars, a bit expensive, but worth every dime. Romer's book, if you can find it, worth every dime if you really, really want to take this seriously. Might not be strictly necessary for some, but always welcome. Ted Ross, The Art of Music Engraving and Processing. So that's one I'm not super familiar with. I don't think it's very common. But if you come across a copy, grab that. There are some more instrument-specific resources out there. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't want to say this for certain, but I think some orchestration method books uh, like Adler's covers a good deal. Yeah, the, the Adler book is probably the best, or at least the most common these days. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It's a tome. You can learn a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's meaty for sure. Samuel um, Solomon, how to write for percussion, hmm. seems to be quite popular. There is uh, Norman Weinberg's book from the Percussive Arts Society, uh, which is how to write for drum set specifically. And I have a copy of that. It was. $12, I think. There is uh, a great orchestrator named Tim Davies, and he has a blog called Debriefed. Yeah. Where he talks about uh, his experience working in LA scoring studios and you know the more job specific things, the industry secrets, and all of that that you would be best to learn beforehand and you can learn it on the job, but it's, it's going to be tough because that's a very unforgiving <laughs> industry. <environment>, yeah. <laughs> very unforgiving down there. Well, there's a lot of money being thrown around and time is always of the essence and everything is needed yesterday. But if you want to get into film and I do recommend it because it's good money. Mm-hmm. I would check that out. There is, give me a moment while I remember the fellow's name. Robert Puff has a blog. His company is RPM, RPM Music. So rpmseattle.com. RPM Seattle Music Preparation is the proper company. 
Gotcha. So I check his blog out often, and he has a lot to say. Uh, works in all sorts of fields. Looking at his site now, I see that he does private lessons, which is interesting because that's somewhat rare, and I think that it should be more common. Um, I do some lessons myself, and people seem to be generally pretty receptive to it. But I think that's something that people don't know is a viable option. They don't know it exists. But yeah, there are teachers out there, if you look. Hmm. Um, I think if you ask any working copyist if they'd be open to it, a lot of them would say yes. That, that seems interesting. Like your lesson materials, it's like, hey, I'm going to give you this literal chicken scratch coming in a week and like we'll uh, figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, and I'll do that. And um, like I said, when I, when I do editing, sometimes I will send the composer or arranger back my edits mm -hmm. uh, in red. And I'll say, okay, to get the most out of our time together, I could just fix this for you, but I think it would be more beneficial if I red pen it and then I hand it over to you and then you make the changes. Right? Because mm -hmm. then you're going to be consciously thinking, okay, you know, you're going to know every edit mm -hmm. and you're going to implement it yourself and you're going to better retain the edit when you do it yourself. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of... Uh, to teach a man to fish, right? You're going to get yeah. more out of it that way. And you're going to get more out of me when all, I don't have to do the note input or whatever myself when I'll print your score, mark it up and send it right back to you. Right. And you're going to, you're, you stand to learn the most when you do it that way. So when I do a lesson, it's usually done in that format. That's actually pretty interesting. Um, it's 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 not necessarily like the whole like viability of it because it, it it's incredibly viable. It's just it's more of like I never knew that was a thing, you know. Right, and it's not <laughs> really, uh, at least not that I'm aware of. It's not commonly done, but I think that it, perhaps it should be. It's also been suggested to me that I should start a Twitch or something like that, or even YouTube, where people could send in examples, and I'll edit it um, on a live stream format, and then mm -hmm. everyone can learn. And I have done live streams before. The benefit to Twitch is that, uh, or at least my understanding of it, is that people can send donations. So it's yes. sort of like a registered masterclass where... You know, you pay for a group lesson mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. So, so I, a digital masterclass is something that I'm very interested in, or a, a masterclass in person. I'm I'm also quite interested in, and I think I may reach out to my alma mater at some point and say, you know, mm -hmm. if you're perhaps looking for a guest lecturer in your orchestration class, or you know, your your composition lecture, where you have like uh, the new guard of of young composers. Um, I don't. I don't want to send them out into the wild, not knowing. So yeah, I think uh, having a guest lecturer, music copyist, if you teach composition, is very wise. 
So uh, I'm thinking about doing just that if there's sufficient interest. Yeah, I mean, I I see every now and then uh, when you do do a live stream, there are people, you know, being receptive, asking right. questions. And sometimes um, other copyists will jump in to the conversation and they'll say, well, what if you try this? Right. Mm -hmm. And I will. And then I can learn something, too. So that's been great. Yeah. And uh, even working as a professional, as we touched on earlier, we do pass each other our work mm -hmm. for, you know, for the finer points or just little things we may have missed. Uh, it does happen. And I, I think there's no reason to... I don't want to gatekeep the knowledge any more than we have to, I guess. Um, I, yeah. I, I can't go giving you all of my secrets because I'm going to be out of a job. Of course. But um, I, I do find that the pros are willing to share what they can, if you ask. So uh, I would say it's, it's very much a profession that is suited to a... It's geared to a specific type of person. And if you think you're that type of person, you know, um, go ahead, reach out. Mm -hmm. As long as you have uh, a respect and a certain humility, I, I suppose, uh, I don't see why the community wouldn't take you in. If ever we don't take you in, it's because <laughs> I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. Generally, because sometimes youngsters come in and they feel like they know everything. You know, well, I got my degree from Berkeley and I'm ready. I know everything. Well, <laughs> you know, it, and that's a fantastic school, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know a lot. But there's a lot that is not taught that you're going to learn on the job. Yeah. In terms of. Uh, just how to live your life as a music hobbyist, especially as a freelancer. Yeah, and, and I mean, of course, through school, I've been able to learn so much, and I feel, you know, completely different than when I first walked in, but that doesn't mean that once I'm out of here, I know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's a little of, bit more uh, of nuanced course not. than that. <laughs> because um, the, the thing is that music is limitless, and that applies here, too. And whatever you choose to do, if you're a performer, composer, arranger, copyist, orchestrator, you're going to learn in, until you die. Yeah. <laughs> is the reality. And that's awesome. That's amazing. But uh, it, I guess I would say if you want to come back to Pet Peeves, mm -hmm. nothing will infuriate me more than hiring me for my expertise and then telling me that I'm wrong. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I. There, if you if you want to infuriate a professional, that's probably the way to do it. Is to tell them their business after you hired them. If that makes sense. Yes. The reasoning for that is so beyond frustrating, and it's. I guess. This isn't the intention, but 
you can see how that feels debasing to somebody mm-hmm. when, uh, for instance, this is my this is my slow burn. This is my brainchild that you know I conceived and I have brought into fruition and I've been working on for you know ten years. That's one third of my life right there. Of course. And to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. when I know that I do, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not going to want to work with you. And you know, the thing about working in this niche community is that we talk to each other. And if you're going to be a pain, people are going to hear about it. And that's just true of, uh, anywhere in the industry. You know, you're going to come to learn that, uh, sometimes the, even the most proficient, of musicians, for instance, sometimes they don't get gigs because they're a pain. And it's it's a factor in, in hiring. Is, is this someone I want to work with? Is this someone I, I want to spend time with and communicate with and try to realize something together? Hmm. And unfortunately, that's rare. Uh, I, I do feel that I find a lot of respect wherever I go, but once in a while, that's going to crop up. Where I suppose maybe someone feels a little threatened and they, they feel the need to sort of flex up on someone more professional. It's just an odd human trait. And I, I can't say I haven't done it, because we all do it. So if this is something that you're interested in, I would say that's that's my basic rundown of what to do and what not to do. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely um, helpful to anyone who's listening that is, is just like, oh, what's music engraving and how do I do things? Yeah, um, how do I become one? Well, yeah. you know, and, and we see this once in a while is uh, somebody fresh face will drop into our group and say, hey, everyone, um, you know, I I just torrented finale. Where are the jobs at? <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's like, oh, why would I tell you that? Right. Think about what you're asking me for a second. You're talking about my livelihood, and it could be your livelihood too. And you know, we may cut you in if you want to earn your stripes and show us that you're serious. We'll be happy to. But if you're coming in and just transparently acting like a snake who just wants my job, no, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and these things usually sort themselves out because if I have to explain this to somebody, it's kind of the old, like, if you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to make a point to sound harsh but it's the truth so uh, I think uh, when I was starting out I I was looking around online for resources I just wanted to see who was out there and what they were doing and how do I get better and I I think I stumbled across uh, Lee Monroe's blog Monroe Express Music Services. That's their company. 
I don't know if they're still active. They were out in LA for a time. Website's a little out of date, I see here. So, Lee Monroe said, if you come up onto the scene and you, know, you don't actually want to build any relationships or make connects, if you just roll up and say, hey everyone, you know, where are the jobs? I want them. You know, what do you charge? Okay, great, I'm gonna undercut you. And I'm gonna get all the work. No, you're actually not because you're gonna make yourself a social pariah. <laughs> the yeah. actual term you use, you're gonna become a pariah. <laughs> Word is gonna spread and your career is gonna be a little short-lived. So if it's something in which you want to just make some fast cash, I would say don't do it. You're really not doing anyone any favors. Mm -hmm. So it's not sustainable, really. I guess it's the best way to think about it. If you want a career in music, you know, generally, if you're serious about it, you're going to want to connect for life. I mean, just you don't you, you don't want to start out making enemies. Yeah. Me. In general, just be a good person. <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, that's a pretty good recipe to get nowhere in life. Period. It's just to be a terrible person. Yeah. In any <clears throat> industry, so. What was the job or moment that? you realized that, like, you know, this this career was for you? Well, thinking back, I think I, I knew that I, I was adept at this and I was suited for this when, when I started my musical training at York University and we were, we had a, a requisite musicianship and theory training where we would study theory and we would also have to do dictations. So the instructor would play you know, little melodies and we would have to transcribe them mm -hmm. on the fly and we'd have to do ear training and recognizing the rules of chords and scales and all these sorts of things. And sometimes we would have, uh, dictation assignments where we would have, we'd be given audio and we would have to transcribe it. The idea of that to, to build your ear, your musical ear, uh, the point wasn't so much notation, but I noticed that everyone around me was complaining about, oh, I have to do these awful dictations. I really don't want to do this. Sometimes, you know, they would cheat and they would pass the work off to each other. And, and, I thought it was so interesting that I never found it irritating. I actually really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't understand why someone wouldn't enjoy it, though now I do. <laughs> and I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess I, I remember thinking, uh, you know, fresh face 18 years old, and I was thinking, there's something, something about me, something different about me, perhaps. And then, um, as I spoke to earlier, as I kept studying composition and theory, studying uh, how to get the sounds that I wanted out of my performers, mm -hmm. I thought, 
I have a really peculiar interest in notation, and I came to learn that that wasn't very common. I thought, well, okay, um, I guess I'll live in a niche then. That's fine. And then I discovered that there was something, there was a market for it that this is something that you could do for money. And so I started out with what I was good at, which was uh, basically chording songs. You know, the, yeah. uh, my guitar and bass player, I was really good at making chord charts because I had to do them on gigs. And <laughs> yeah. I would, sometimes I would work with a lot of singers who didn't have a theoretical background, uh, you know, these songwriters, and say, I, you know, I, I really want to write my music down so that I can have better rehearsals and for posterity. Mm -hmm. Like, can can you help me? And I said, absolutely. And they would say, what do you, what would you charge? And I would say, I have no idea. But I figured that out along the way, what things were worth. And I started, as I was uh, inquiring about this, I found all of these hard-hitting copyists and realized, this is something that you could make a viable living at. And believe it or not, I have a friend, a colleague, I won't give his name. As, uh, just for privacy reasons, but I have a friend who, who uh, has been known to make six figures working in and around uh, the New York scene. So not only not only can you make yeah not not only can you make a living if you're extremely dedicated and work very hard, you can make a very comfortable living. And uh, mind you, the cost of living in, in New York City is absurd as it is in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but it doesn't even have to be a side gig that you do for scratch. It could be your living. So I think that really piqued my interest. And I, I, I thought to myself, you know, uh, I've been doing better. I've been getting more jobs and I've been charging more and, and getting away with it. So why don't I take that as far as I can? And uh, that's sort of where I ended up where I am today. And think that I, I have a ways to go but with say you know five years and a really dedicated individual who's plugged into the right channels you could uh, make a part-time gig for yourself why not I'm not saying it's easy to make a full-time gig it's not it's mm -hmm. it's quite difficult and for most I would say it's prohibitively difficult but if you want it that badly, it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. Um, yeah, I think that's a much more positive note to <laughs> I agree. clean up on. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, thanks for uh, taking your time uh, out of your day to talk to me. Uh, about some good old paper and pen music stuff. Paper and ink and rulers. And... Sure. Well, there were the, uh, the communities that I mentioned earlier. So uh, look up on Facebook. Music engraving tips. Music uh, transcription takedown community. Avid Sibelius. Uh, Sibelius Software Forum. 
Sibelius Power Users, Finale Power Users, Finale 101, uh, GNU, Lily Pond, look up the Dorico group. And these are all the, the communities I hang out in, orchestration online, porn arranging. Uh, my personal page, well, not personal, but rather my, my business page is uh, Toronto Music Service. So I have a Facebook page up and running. You can reach out to me there. You can engage me on Instagram or Twitter under the same name. I, I don't have a.com yet, but if you, if you just look up Toronto Music Service, you'll find me. Uh, Musicengravingtips.com. Uh, there's also a YouTube channel for Music Engraving Tips. Look up NYC Music Services and Robert Huff on Twitter. There's another Twitter account that I really enjoy that's uh, Finale and, and Sibelius and Oracle have social media too. There's some line. Uh, or just search the hashtags. Music notation, music engraving, music prep. There's not a lot of us out there on social media, so you're going to find everybody. <laughs> <laughs>